0: Chapter 24 of Muslin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by La Lavoie of Swansea, Illinois. Muslin by George Moore. Chapter 24. Then Alice heard that the baby was dead, and that a little money would be required to bury it. Another effort was made. The money was sent, and the calm of the succeeding weeks was only disturbed by an uneasy desire to see May back in Galway and hear her say that her terrible secret was over and done with forever. One day she was startled by a quick trampling of feet in the corridor, and May rushed into the room. She threw herself into Alice's arms and kissed her with effusion, with tears. The girls looked at each other long and nervously. One was pale and overworn. Her spare figure was buttoned into a faded dress, and her hair was rolled into a plain knot. The other was superb with health, and her face was full of rose bloom. She was handsomely dressed in green velvet, and her copper hair flamed and flashed beneath a small bonnet with mauve strings. "'Oh, Alice!' "'How tired and pale you look! "'You have been working too hard, and all for me! "'How can I thank you? "'I shall never be able to thank you. "'I cannot find words to tell you how grateful I am. "'But I am grateful, Alice. "'Indeed I am. "'I am sure you are, dear. "'I did my best for you. "'It is true, and thank heaven I succeeded. "'And no one knows. "'I do not think that any one even suspects.' No, not a soul. We managed it very well, didn't we? And the Reverend Mother behaved splendidly. She just took the view that you said she would. She saw no good would come of telling Mamma about me when I made her understand that if a word were said, my misfortune would be belled all over the country in double-quick time. But, Alice, dear, I had a terrible time of it. Two months waiting in that little lodging, afraid to go out for fear someone would recognize me. It was awful. And often I hadn't enough to eat, for when you are in that state, you can't eat everything, and I was afraid to spend any money. You did your best to keep me supplied, dear, good guardian angel that you are. Then the impulsive girl flung herself on Alice's shoulders and kissed her. But there were times when I was hard up, oh, much more hard up than you thought I was, for I didn't tell you everything. If I had, you would have worried yourself into your grave. Oh, I had a frightful time of it. If one is married, one is petted and consoled and encouraged, but alone in a lodging? Oh, it was frightful. And what about the poor baby? said Alice. The poor little thing died, as I wrote you, about ten days after it was born. I nursed it, and I was sorry for it. "'I really was, but of course—well, it seems a hard thing to say, "'but I don't know what I should have done with it if it had lived. "'Life isn't so happy, is it, even under the best of circumstances?' "'The conversation came to a sudden close. "'At last the nervous silence that intervened was broken by May. "'We were speaking about money. "'I will repay you all I owe you some day, Alice, dear.' I will save up all the money I can get out of Mother. She is such a dear old thing, but I cannot understand her. Not a penny did she send me for the first six weeks, and then she sent me twenty-five pounds, and it was lucky she did, for the doctor's bill was something tremendous. And I bought this dress and bonnet with what was left. I ought to have repaid you first thing, but I forgot it until I had ordered the dress. I assure you it does not matter, May i shall never take the money from you if i did it would take away all the pleasure i had in serving you oh but i will insist Alice, dear. i could not think of such a thing but there's no use in discussing that point until i get the money tell me what do you think of my bonnet i think it is very nice indeed and i never saw you looking better and thus ended may dublin adventure it was scarcely spoken of again and when they met at a ball given by the officers stationed in Galway, Alice was astonished to find that she experienced no antipathy whatever towards this rich-blooded young person. "'My dear guardian angel, come and sit with me in this corner. I'd sooner talk to you than anyone. "'We won't go down yet a while. We'll make the men wait.' And then she put her arms round Alice's waist and told her the latest news of Violet and her marquise, "'Alice abandoned herself to the caress "'and heard that thirty years ago the late Marquise "'had entered a grocer's shop in Galway "'to buy a pound of tea for an importuning beggar. "'And what do you think, my dear? "'It was Mrs. Scully who served it out to him. "'And do you know what they are saying? "'That it is all your fault that Olive did not marry Kilcarney.' "'My fault? "'Your fault!' because you gave the part of the beggar-maid to Violet, and if Olive had played the beggar-maid and hadn't married Kilcarney, the fault would have been laid at your door just the same. The pale cheeks of Lord Rosshill's seven daughters waxed a hectic red. The ladies' cullen grew more angular, and smiled and cawed more cruelly. Mrs. Barton, the Brennans, and Duffies cackled more warmly and continuously, and Bertha, the terror of the debutantes beat the big drum more furiously than ever the postscripts to her letters were particularly terrible and to think that the grocer's daughter should come in for all this honour it is she who will turn up her nose at us at the castle next year ah had i known what was going to happen it is i who would have pulled the fine feathers out of her day after day week after week the agony was protracted until every heart grew weary of the strain put upon it and sighed for relief, but it was impossible to leave off thinking and talking, and the various accounts of orange blossoms and the bridesmaids that in an incessant postal stream were poured during the month of January into Galway seemed to provoke rather than abate the marriage fever. The subject was inexhaustible, and little else was spoken of until it was time to pack up trunks and prepare for the castle season. The bride, it was stated, would be present at the second drawing-room in March. Nevertheless, Alice noticed that the gladness of last year was gone out of their hearts. None expected much, and all remembered a little of the disappointments they had suffered. A little of the book had been read, The lines of white girls standing about the pillars in Patrick's Hall, the empty waltz tunes, and the long hours passed with their chaperons were terrible souvenirs to pause upon. Still they must fight on to the last. There is no going back. There is nothing for them to go back to. There is no hope in life for them but the vague hope of a husband. So they keep on to the last, becoming gradually more spiteful and puerile, Their ideas of life and things growing gradually narrower, until, in their thirty-fifth or fortieth year, they fall into the autumn heaps, to lie there forgotten, or to be blown hither or thither by every wind that blows. Two of Lord Rosshill's daughters had determined to try their luck again, and a third was undecided. The ladies Cullen said that they had their school to attend to and could not leave Galway poverty compelled the brennans and duffies to remain at home alice would willingly have done the same but tempted by the thin chance that she might meet with harding she yielded to her mother's persuasions harding did not return to dublin and her second season was more barren of incident than the first the same absence of conviction the same noisy gossiping and inability to see over the horizon of marion square The same servile adoration of officialism, the same meanness committed to secure an invitation to the castle, the same sing-song waltz tunes, the same miserable, mocking melancholy, muslin hours were endured by the same white martyrs. And if the castle remained unchanged, Mount Street lost nothing of its original aspect. Experience had apparently taught Mrs. Barton nothing. She knew but one set of tricks. If they failed, she repeated them. She was guided by the indubitableness of instinct, rather than by the more wandering light that is reason. Mr. Barton, who it was feared might talk of painting, and so distract the attention from more serious matters, was left in Galway, and amid eight or nine men collected here, there, and everywhere out of the hotels and barrack rooms, The three ladies sat down to dinner. Mrs. Barton, who could have talked to twenty men and have kept them amused, was severely handicapped by the presence of her daughters. Olive, at the best of times, could do little more than laugh, and as Alice never had anything to say to people she met at her mother's house, the silences that hung over the Mount Street dinner table were funereal in intensity and length from time to time questions were asked relating to the castle the weather and the theatre therefore beyond the fact that neither lord kilcarney nor mr harding was present the girls passed their second season in the same manner as their first les deux pièces de résistance at mount street were a dissipated young english lord in a gouty old irish distiller and Mrs. Barton was making every effort to secure one of these. A pianist was ordered to attend regularly at four o'clock, and now if Alice was relieved of the duty of spelling through the doleful strains of dream faces, she was forced to go round and round with the distiller until an extra glass of port forced the old gentleman to beg mercy of Mrs. Barton. At one o'clock in the morning, the young lord used to enter the Kildare Street Club weary, but not much way was made with either and when one returned to london and the other to a sick-bed olive abandoned herself to a series of flirtations at the castle she danced with all who asked her and she sat out dances in the darkest corners of the most distant rooms with every officer stationed in dublin mrs barton never refused an invitation to dance no matter how low and in all the obscure afternoons in mount street and pembroke street Olive's blonde, cameo-like face was seen laughing with every official of Cork Hill and the gigmen of Kildare Street. In May, the Bartons went abroad, and Olive flirted with foreign titles, French counts, Spanish dukes, Russian princes, Swedish noblemen of all kinds, and a goodly number of English refugees with irreproachable neckties and a taste for Baccarat. In the balmy gardens of Ostend and Boulogne, jubilant with june and the overture of masson yellow my lord and mrs barton walked in front talking and laughing gracefully olive chose him who flattered her the most outrageously and alice strove hard to talk to the least objectionable of the men she was brought in contact with amid these specious talkers there were a few who reminded her of mr harding and she hoped later on to be able to return her present experiences to account. There was, of course, much dining at cafes and dining at the casinos, and evening walks along the dark shore. Alice often feared for her sister, but the girl's vanity and lightheadedness were her safeguards, and she returned to Galway only a little wearied by the long chase after amusement. The soft Irish summer is pleasant after the glare of foreign towns, and the country, the rickety stone walls, and the herds of cattle, the deep, curved lines of the plantations of the domain lands, the long streaks of brown bog, the flashing tarns of bog water, and the ruined cottage lay dozing in beautiful silvery haze. There was much charm for Alice in these familiar signs, and although she did not approve of, although she would not care ever to meet them again the people she had met at ostend and deep had interested her she had picked up ideas and had received impressions and with these germinating in her a time of quiet a time for reading and thinking came as a welcome change after the noise of casinos and the glitter of fireworks the liberty she had enjoyed the sense it had brought with it that she was neither a doll nor a victim had rendered her singularly happy. The plot of a new story was singing in her head, the characters flitted before her eyes, and to think of them or to tell Cecilia of them was a pleasure sufficient for all her daily desire. Olive, too, was glad. The sunlight had gone into her blood, and she romps with her mother and malord amid the hay, or stretched at length she listens to the green air of the lawn. Her dreams ripple like water along a vessel's side, the white wake of the past in bubble behind her. And when the life of the landscape is burnt out, and the day in dying seems to have left its soul behind, she stands watching, her thoughts curdling gently, the elliptical flight of the swallows through the gloom, and the flutter of the bats upon the dead sky but the thoughtless brain fed for many weeks upon noise and glitter soon began to miss its accustomed stimulants and mrs barton was quick to comprehend sudden twitchings of the face and abrupt movements of the limbs and keenly alive to what was passing in her daughter's mind she insisted on olives accompanying her to the tennis parties with which the county teemed. sir charles mr adair "'and even poor Sir Richard were put forward as the most eligible of men. "'It is impossible to say when the big fish will be caught. "'It is often the last try that brings him to land,' murmured Mrs. Barton. "'But Olive had lost courage and could fix her thoughts on no one, "'and often when they returned home she would retire to her room to have a good cry. "'Leave me alone, Alice. Oh, go away. Don't tease me. Don't tease me.' I only want to be left alone. But listen, dear, can I do anything for you? You? No, no, indeed you can't. I only want to be left alone. I am so miserable, so unhappy. I wish I were dead. Dead? Yes, dead. What's the use of living when I know I shall be an old maid? We shall all be old maids. What's the use of being pretty either when Violet though she be but a bag of bones, has got the marquise. I have been out two seasons now, and nothing has come of all the trying. And yet I was the belle of the season, wasn't I, Alice? And now, looking more than ever like a cameo Niobe, Olive stared at her sister piteously. Oh, yes, Alice, I know I shall be an old maid, and isn't it dreadful? And I, the belle of the season? It makes me so unhappy. No one ever heard of the bell. And I was the bell, not of one, but of two seasons. Remaining an old maid. I can understand a lot of ugly things not getting married, but I... Alice smiled, and half-ironically, she asked herself if Olive really suffered. No heart-pang was reflected in those blue, mindless eyes. There was no heart to wound. Only a little foolish vanity had been bruised and to think cried this whimpering beauty when alice had seen her successfully through a flood of hysterical tears that i was silly enough to give up dear edward i am punished for it now indeed i am and it was very wicked of me it was a great sin i broke his heart but you know alice dear that it was all mamma's fault she urged me on and you know how i refused How I resisted her. Didn't I resist? Tell me. You know. And why won't you say that I did resist? You did indeed, Olive. But you must not distress yourself, or you will make yourself ill. Yes, perhaps you are right. There's nothing makes one look so ugly as crying. And if I lost my looks and met Edward, he might not care for me. He'd be disappointed. I mean, but I haven't lost my looks. I am just as pretty as I was when I came out am i not alice indeed you are dear you don't think i have gone off a bit now do tell me and i want to ask you what you think of my hair in a fringe papa says it isn't classical but that's nonsense i wish i knew how edward would like me to wear it but you mustn't think of him olive dear you know mother would never hear of it i can't help thinking of him and now i will tell you something alice if you promise me on your word of honor not to scold me, and above all, not to tell Mamma, I promise. Well, the other day, I was walking at the end of the lawn, feeling so very miserable. You don't know how miserable I feel. You are never miserable, for you think of nothing but your books. Well, mind, you have given me your word not to tell anyone. I saw Captain Hibbert riding along the road, and when he saw me, "'He stopped his horse and kissed his hand to me. "'And what did you do? "'I, I don't know what I did. "'He called me, and, and then I saw my lord coming along the road and fled, "'but, oh, isn't it cruel of mamma to have forbidden Edward to come and see us? "'And he loving me as much as ever.' "'This was not the moment to advise her sister "'against clandestine meetings with Captain Hibbert. "'She was sobbing violently.' and Alice had to assure her again and again that no one who had been the belle of the season had ever remained an old maid. But Alice, having well in mind the fate that had befallen May Gould, grew not a little alarmed when, in the course of next week, she suddenly noticed that Olive was in the habit of going out for long walks alone, and that she invariably returned in a state of high spirits all the languor and weariness seeming to have fallen from her. Alice once thought of following her sister. She watched her open the wicket and walk across the meadows toward the Lawler Domain. There was a bypath there leading to the high road, but the delicacy of their position in relation to the owners prevented the bartons from ever making use of it. Nor did Alice fail to notice that about the same time Barnes, ON THE PRETENCE OF ARRANGING THE ROOM FOR THE EVENING, WOULD STRIVE TO DRIVE HER FROM HER WRITING TABLE, AND BEDS WERE MADE AND UNMADE, DRESSES WERE TAKEN OUT OF THE WARDROBE, AND IMPORTUNING CONVERSATIONS WERE BEGUN. BUT TAKING NO HEED OF THE officious MAID, ALICE, HER THOUGHTS TENSE WITH ANXIETY, SAT AT HER WINDOW WATCHING THE SLENDER FIGURE OF THE GIRL GROWING DIM IN THE DYING LIGHT. ONCE SHE DID NOT RETURN UNTIL IT WAS QUITE DARK, and reproaching herself for having remained so long silent, Alice walked across the pleasure grounds to meet her. "'What? You here?' cried Olive, surprised at finding her sister waiting for her at the wicket. She was out of breath. She had evidently been running. "'Yes, Olive, I was anxious to speak to you. You must know that it is very wrong to meet Captain Hibbert, and in the secrecy of a wood. Who told you I had been to meet Captain Hibbert?' I suppose you have been following me. No, Olive, I haven't, and you have no right to accuse me of such meanness. I have not been following you, but I cannot help putting two and two together. You told me something of this once before, and since then you have scarcely missed an evening. Well, I don't see any harm in meeting Edward. He is going to marry me. Going to marry you? Yes, going to marry me is there anything so very extraordinary in that? Mamma had no right to break off the match, and I am not going to remain an old maid. And have you told Mother about this? No. Where's the use, since she won't hear of it? And are you going to run away with Captain Hibbert? Run away with him, exclaimed Olive, laughing strangely. No, of course I am not. And how are you going to marry him if you don't tell Mother? I shall tell her when the time comes to tell her. And now, Alice, dear, you will promise not to betray me, won't you? You will not speak about this to anyone. You promise me? If you did, I know I shall go mad or kill myself. But when will you tell mother of your resolution to marry Captain Hibbert? Tell her? I'll tell her tomorrow, if you like. That is to say, if you will give me your word of honor not to speak to her about my meeting Edward in the Lawler Wood. Afterwards, Alice often wondered at her dullness in not guessing the truth. But at the time it did not occur to her that Olive might have made arrangements to elope with Captain Hibbert, and on the understanding that all was to be explained on the following day, she promised to keep her sister's secret. End of chapter 24 Recording by Lisanne Lavoie